So, I know that for some, even the sight of a microphone can produce unpleasant sensations. And sometimes those unpleasant sensations increase with the proximity of the micro as it gets closer. But, uh, yeah, despite it being sometimes a source of anxiety a little bit to to speak out in in a room like this, and I think it's worth it just for that hearing of what I was just earlier referring to as you know, hearing our common humanity and just hearing the little references to whatever um, circumstances may be going on for you. Some speaking about busyness, fullness of life, some with various struggles or with health difficulties or uh, challenging situations or bereavement or uh, illness of loved ones or various ways in which this life we find ourselves finds itself exerting its pressures on us in ways we might not like, in ways that we might not choose and of course in ways that we don't get the luxury of choosing. And even though the uh, time like this has been given this rather strange and possibly unfortunate name called a retreat which sounds like one's backing away from something rather think of it as a kind of practice intensive or as a way of putting our life under the microscope certainly we find we don't get to really leave our lives behind Although we do get to put aside some of the details and duties, maybe even some of the dramas, so as to look closely, so as to put the stuff of our life under the microscope. And we find that our habits and our relationships all tend to show up in various ways because... As one of my friends likes to put it, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. And so, if we have the, the, if the, the way the stuff of our life impacts on us is in such a way that we find ourselves struggling with it, feeling oppressed by it, confused by it, or scared by it, etc., then even when we put those particular circumstances aside and we come to an environment like this where there's very little you have to do during the day. The duties are put aside to a very large extent. And the complexities are put aside to a large extent. And the stuff of kind of the presenting of ourselves, who we are and what we do and the seeming need to uh, impress or entertain others, etc., is put aside. And instead we have a great simplicity of being here together. Just sitting around quietly, wandering around quietly stopping every few hours to eat eat a little bit quietly and then I'll take rest. Great simplicity, silence and support 
And yet we find that the way we, the way we find ourselves reacting to other circumstances of life may, possibly surprisingly, may sometimes alarmingly, find that we find ourselves reacting to these circumstances in similar ways. Even though uh, it's an environment, like I said, of, certain, of care, of support, of situational ease, Right. Nothing to do. You're fed, kept warm. Anytime there's the slightest need to know anything, a bell rings and tells you what to do. And it's basically either sit down or get up. Right. And yet, maybe, and there may be moments actually of, a gr- of real graciousness, moments of real ease, moments of real expansiveness, moments of great appreciation, moments of liberating insight, moments that feel like great benefit, like some of you just spoke to in going around. And yet there may be also moments where we, can, where we experience this simple, open, caring environment in some of the familiar ways that we've experienced other environments in our life. We might notice ways in which we're making drama out of our life, and creating pressure out of our life. It's so interesting how one can just sit, sit down quietly for half an hour or so, and within that half an hour, one can create a lot of drama. Even if it's just drama about when the bell's going to ring. One can create a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure about um, the need to sit in a particular way. Or a lot of of pressure for our mind to go in a particular direction. Or a particular, a lot of pressure around trying to stop our mind going in any direction. So, on the one hand, there's this warm... Welcome an invitation into the silence and simplicity and support of being here. And on the other hand, there's this kind of poignant recognition that despite that welcome, it may be that we find our, our, some of our usual habits showing up. And the hope then that we can bring a lot of care to those usual habits. We can bring the kind of the, the brightness of meditation, the inquiry of meditation, the gentle holding of meditation to bear on the habits that find themselves embedded in bodily life and the way that shows up, the habits that find themselves uh, embedded in uh, our mental patterns habits that find themselves showing up as various familiar and yet sometimes difficult emotions. The background, of course, of this practice is a Buddhist background. Or rather, to be maybe more uh, precise, it's the background that began with the teachings of uh, Buddha. This particular figure is actually a part of a whole fabric of countless men and women throughout history, of countless people who have found themselves 
kind of drawn to look as closely at life as they can. And there's various trajectories of that and various teachings of that, various technologies, we might say, various approaches to looking deeply into life. And the way we're doing that, as I say, has its origins in uh, the way Buddha did it. I say that that's more exact than it having Buddhist origins because, of course, sometimes you might notice a gap between... Um, well, between Buddha and Buddhism, let's say. And I was reflecting uh, recently with a friend about the kind of the, the sort of core invitation of the Buddha's teachings. The things, that, the core things that get emphasised over and over again about the liberation of heart and mind. Sometimes called as the yeah, these sort of three fields of opening up, or three ways in which we kind of put down the burden of our habitual relationship with life. The first one of those is where he talks about the freeing up of, of views, learning to put aside our fixed ideas about ourselves and about the world and about others where we learn increasingly to abide independently of views. And, you know, that might sound like something of a contrast with Buddhism or any otherism, which tends to be a collection of views, right? Views about the way life is, views about um, karma and rebirth, maybe. But... So interesting to have that sort of central theme of one of putting aside views, including, he says, views about views. Right? Including, we might say, Dharma, Dharma views. Including views based on what happened last time we were on retreat. Or including views based on what we just heard other people say about life changing or something fabulous that happened and they were here before. How interesting how a moment of, that can be touching or inspiring. Like we hear someone say, oh, something really profound happened for me in this practice. And we find that, you know, we can just allow that to touch or inspire us. But also we can notice how we might start to construct a view about that. Oh, okay, this is a life-changing practice. I'd better get with the program. How's my life going to change? And the familiar kind of Pressurizing, inner pressurizing starts to happen. So that'll be one of the threads over these days. How we might unburden ourselves of the various views, known or unknown, right? Some of our views are so well established that they'd seem like self evident truths about ourselves, about others, about the world, about the way life is, about reality. And certainly not my intention to replace one set of habitual views with some other set called Buddhist views or, or Martin's views. But rather to point us to how we might ah, live with a little more ambiguity, actually. A little more uh, kind of openness to the 
the way in which life is vast and free and mysterious and cannot be confined actually by what I think, cannot be confined to what I think about it. It's one of the ways meditation works, right? Is to is to uh, train our capacity to meet experience without having a view about it, without relying on an idea about what this is. And of course, we've grown up, all of us, in a world of views. We've grown up to adopt various views, consciously and unconsciously. We've grown up to uh, generate a lot of our own views. Sometimes to such an extent that we, we can't imagine, we can't conceive what it might be to meet life free from our views about life. And so, in different ways over these days, we'll experiment together in how to meet life uh, rather more directly or intimately or freely than everyday mind and the conceptions and views and opinions and ideas and dramas of everyday mind can, can manage. And then the other second area that's spoken about very consistently is the life freeing up through being independent of our desires. And sometimes, you know, that gets translated to a Buddhist idea sometimes of the ending of all desire, no more desires. And for some that even seems to be an attractive proposition. One finds oneself trying to practice to extinguish desire in some way. And then for others that seems to be a confusing proposition. Either it makes it seem impossibly far away, some idea of getting to some place beyond a desire, or it just makes it sound dull as ditch water. Why would I, what? Why would I want to not have any more desires? We might even ask ourselves how life might even work itself through us without the arising of any desire. Plenty of desires useful. Right? Desire to eat, desire to be have body be at a comfortable temperature, desire to kind of take care of our business and the business of the world, desire to have uh, to live in a world that expresses justice and compassion, desire to kind of grow our human capacity etc., etc. You can think of all manner of wholesome desires. So it's not that we're trying to point to something, the kind of the extinguishing or the denial, but rather what I think is much better phrased with the sense of seeing how we might abide independent from desire itself. 
uncaught, we might say, by desire. Undiminished by desire, un- uncontracted by desire. And we'll see whether it's the kind of the, the waves of some, of some kind of uh, intense fantasy that sometimes arises in meditation. Sexual fantasy that can kind of destabilize our practice for some time. Or holiday fantasy. You know, we're sitting here in the rain and the dull English grey weather. And then the fantasy life goes to some kind of tropical paradise that I could have gone to this week instead of coming here. And then we find ourselves caught by desire contracted by desire, fixated upon some object that we've made into our salvation. If only I had that. And even though philosophically we might know that you know, desirable objects come and go, and however desirable they are, when they come, they never quite completely fully satisfy us. The proof of which is the fact that shortly after there's another one. It was good, but now I want something else. And so we get the opportunity in our practice here to kind of study not our desires to a certain extent, but mostly actually to really to study desire itself, to study the way the ha- our habits with desire, the ways we get fixated upon, contracted by, compelled towards particular objects, and how that feeds a sense of dissatisfaction, a sense of lack a sense of not good enough, a sense of kind of leaning forward towards the object of desire. Or for other of us, it expresses the same thing, in, same thing going on, but in the opposite way, of fixating on what's wrong, leaning back, trying to get away from the um, undesirable object. And you certainly can make up plenty of undesirable objects out of being here on retreat fussing and freaking out about some physical discomfort in the sitting or about the crows. Right? You know, you laugh. You say, Maybe the crows seem nice to you on the first day. Right? Some people, sometimes people have written notes to the coordinators. Please, can you do something about the crows? They're ruining my meditation. Right? You know, a human habit to fixate to contract the mind around an object, dessert, yummy object or, or revolting object, and make a big drama. And so that might be the, a thread that runs through the retreat for us. Learning, not the crows, I don't mean, although for some, but the thread of learning how we might abide more independently with desire. And the third area that's pointed to very consistently is what we might call learning to abide independent from self-concern. And Buddhism then gets into some kind of weird tautology about no self or not self. It's rather different than what's initially spoken about. And in fact, if for those of you who might be well-versed in Buddhism and think I'm straying into some kind of heretical territory, it's interesting to reflect that uh, in the text, when the Buddha's asked directly, right, 
it, for goodness sake, man, tell me, is there a self or isn't there? He refuses to answer. Refuses to get drawn into the thicket of views. Everyday view. This is me, this is the myself. Or some sort of quasi or pseudo-Buddhist view. There is no self. Rather, the encouragement to, en- to engage with, to learn about, and increasingly to b- abide independently from self-concern. We get very concerned with ourselves. My, you know, my needs and my relationships and my issues and my problems and my parents and my work and my this and my that. And concerned, self-concerned with oneself in a way that actually increases the, the sense of self, the centrality of self, the knot of self, the friction of self. And so another way we might uh, think about that is uh, actually moving from self-concern to self-care. The capacity actually to let go of that, um, that intense, often harsh, often critical concern about uh, how I am and whether I'm good enough or witty enough or attractive enough or wise enough or meditative enough, mindful enough, spiritual enough. To what we might call self-care, right? the moment-by-moment capacity to actually meet what's in our experience, to kind of listen closely and caringly to our experience, to extend a kind of warm and gentle and generous attention to this heart and mind and body and world that's arising right here. In awareness. And so this vision of a kind of independence is really the thread that runs through these teachings and these practices. This liberating vision of abiding independently of mind's views. Of abiding independently from habits, fixations, desires. And of abiding independently of neurotic, self-reinforcing concern. So that on the one hand there's an increasingly intimacy with the experience of this moment. And simultaneously, there's an increasing ease with it, space around it. As we learn to put down the compulsion of our views and desires and self-concerns. And and at least during these days, right, where this is a meditation retreat, right? So meditation is the main activity of the day in its formal aspects, sitting, walking, standing, reclining. And in its informal aspects, right, which are kind of meditative eating, meditative moving around the place, kind of just staying contactful and curious 
about our own experience in, in all the moments of the day, formal and informal. And in that way we're cultivating this extraordinary human capacity that we all have to really to be aware of what's happening. The capacity that's really quite ordinary, normal, the capacity that's here right now. As soon as I say, you know, notice that you're here, right? Notice that you're conscious. You can do that. You don't need to, uh, hold on, let me get into some special meditative state for that, right? Do you know you're here? How do you know you're here? How do you know you're here? can't even answer. What do you mean? How do I know I'm here? Stupid question. It's obvious. right? It's incredibly obvious. It's obvious that you're conscious right now. Right? Are you aware? Yes. If I say, be aware of, your, of the sitting, can you feel the sitting here? Yes. It's been nearly an hour. Some of you can feel it too much already. I say to just be aware of hearing, right? as, in, as the sound of my voice is going, well, can you be aware of the hearing? Yes, easily. So this, this, when we speak about awareness, we're not speaking about something weird or mysterious or something to be attained through um, days and nights of special meditative effort. We're talking about this ordinary being here. And yet, this, this awareness, the fundamental fact of knowing what we know, knowing that we're conscious, knowing that what we're experiencing, is so obvious, so fundamental, it's the ground of all experience, that we tend literally to overlook it, to look past our awareness, and become so fascinated by our fixations, our views, our, our uh, desires and our self-concern that we get lost in all those objects contracted around those objects fixated upon all those objects so really we're uh, asking you we're asking each other to be very simple to come back again and again to the simple fact of being here to attune to the awareness of being here and to use this awareness to listen deeply to our own experience, to life itself. And then to really find out together how that awareness can shine a light on our views and desires and self-concerns, can shine a light on our uh, habits, on our compulsions and contractions. Can shine a light in such a way that we and see, maybe we don't need to hold those things so tightly. Maybe we can unburden ourselves. Maybe we can abide more independently from this stuff of our life, more intimately with this life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.